0: And to prepare for receiving from God's Word, if you go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we have a a privilege this morning, a special privilege for uh, my wife and I. We have some some dear friends from many years ago, actually Brayden and Christy Greer. We got to know Christy when she was not yet married, and uh, we've known her for many years, gotten to know Brayden over the years. Um, Braden is a friend of ours, Um, we love and respect him. He's a pastor at Covenant Life Church, been there for I guess eight years, right? All right, excellent, about seven to eight years. So um, been pastoring there, we have a privilege to hear from him this morning. So let's go ahead and thank God for for Brayden and welcome him this morning. So come on up. Well, good morning everyone, it's great to be here with you all. You've been such a a welcoming church and uh, getting to know some of you and saying hello and of course, it's been great to be at the Rawlings and our kids and their kids just run around having a great time for hours on end, which has been fun. And uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I think I've, well, I've been to Myrtle Beach before, but this is the first time I've spent any time away from the beach in, in South Carolina, so it's fun to, to get to know your state and uh, just really enjoying it. So, well, we are going to be looking at some of the first verses in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apostle John. And so we're going to be in chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 9, reading through verse 20. But before we get there, just a little brief background. The Apostle John was on the island of Patmos when this revelation came to him. And he he was imprisoned there, we think, for bearing witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, Patmos is off, uh, off the coast of what is now Turkey. Uh, only about 65 miles from Ephesus, where Timothy was, uh, where Ephesians was written to. I know you all are studying Ephesians right now together. So uh, a little while ago, uh, a few years ago, I did a little Internet search uh, research about uh, modern-day Patmos, which, oddly enough, is called Patmos. And uh, it's it's quite interesting. You read about it, and, and it turns out the bulk of the economy is actually based on tourism from the fact that John wrote Revelation on their small island. And so about five years ago, I had come across the the following off the official Patmos website. So if you go there now, I imagine it's changed. Uh, Apparently, whoever they commissioned to to translate the the, the copy uh, from the website from Greek into English must have learned their English from uh, Hollywood movies, I guess, because it's uh, very colorful and full of mistakes. So a little fun here. Uh, So under the category of nightlife on the happening isle of Patmos, which is population 3,000, I read the following description of a club called 1673. It says, Always at the top ten. The trendy place in the island for many years is called 1673. Thousand of people pass by to have a drink on the roofs of Cora, a place the elite as well as the simple tourists passing by Patmos just adore. There is something magical about it, something quiet and authentic. Nothing showy, but all is simple and wonderful. Good music, good company, which make you feel high. Don't show, it's nothing to do with the alcohol, I guess. But don't show any surprise if you're sitting next to Valentino, who I had to look him up as an uh, Italian fashion designer, or David Bowie, the rock star, because it is just a common phenomenon. Don't show any surprise if you're sitting next to Valentino; it's just a common phenomenon. But my question is, is it still a phenomenon if it's common? I don't know. Well, if you're on Patmos. And you're walking around. It may be a common phenomenon to see Valentino or David Bowie. But imagine with me for a moment that you're touring the island, and instead of famous people in a club, you meet the one who started it all. You're there on the barren rocky landscape, and you meet the one who started it all. You come into, the con- into contact with the one who was there when Patmos and all the earth wasn't. The one who existed before all this stuff we see existed. The one who at a point in time didn't come into being, but just always was and who always will be. The one who created all the famous people in all of history. And when he comes, he he didn't come in, in the lesser glory, though it was a great glory of his incarnate flesh, but he came in the greater glory of a vision, an awesome vision. That's an uncommon phenomenon. And we're going to read about an uncommon phenomenon, one in which the Apostle John is surprised by the appearance of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's nothing common. You know this. There's nothing common about Jesus Christ. And there's nothing common about having a vision of him as John did on this island. So if Jesus isn't common and a vision of Jesus isn't common, it follows that John's response and our response, by extension, isn't common either. When we meet Christ through the Word today, just as John met Him on the island of Patmos, we we can be undone. We we see Him in in His glory. We ought to respond accordingly. So just take a moment with me and pray before we turn our attention to God's Word. Father in Heaven, You have decided that we will know Jesus through the words of Scripture. And so, Spirit of God, we pray and come and open our eyes to see Jesus Christ. Lord, we need You. There are so many things that distract us. Lord, help us to focus just, uh, just these minutes on Jesus Christ and His glory and what You want to communicate through Your Word. Bless us, Lord, as a people. Bless this church, Lord, uh, with, with adoration and joy and delight in Jesus Christ. So bless your word as we preach, as we pray, as we consider, as we, as we study your word, Lord. Help us to see. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to simply kind of walk through this passage, phrase or a verse at a time. There won't be a particular structure um, that I'm going to be walking through uh, for this passage in particular. If you take notes and that's helpful, for you be able to engage great. But I also recommend... Uh, If you don't need to take notes to say engaged, to just sort of experience the vision of Christ as we read it through, to enjoy Jesus through this vision. Well, starting off in verse 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 1, John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, the the picture here, I think it's safe to assume, is that John's all alone on this part of the island. Do you remember uh, Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway? Do you remember that movie? I I enjoyed that. He, you know, Hanks's character works for FedEx, in a plane crash around Christmas time, strands him on a desert island all by himself. He was, he was very successful with FedEx. He was engaged to be married. All of it was gone in a moment. Stranded on this de- desert island. The movie chronicles his survival, his loss of sanity, his codependent relationship with a, with a volleyball, uh, and then his eventual escape back to civilization. And my friends tease me about this, but what I wanted to do, uh, I, I told them about this, maybe I shouldn't have, I don't know. I went to this movie, and I went all alone, and I sat as far away from everyone else as possible so I could experience what it was like as much as possible, that what the character was experiencing, being all alone. I think it's that kind of movie that needs to be experienced to have its full effect. Well, the Apostle John is on an island, and at this moment it appears he's, he's all by himself. When, when all of a sudden the silence is broken by a voice that sounded like a trumpet, it was so commanding. The voice sounded like a trumpet, but it was a voice with discernible words. But it was commanding like a trumpet. It's kind of hard to imagine, but just imagine—you know—you're there, maybe a deserted place that you go to um, to be alone, to think, to pray, maybe read your Bible, and all of a sudden no one's there so you you know you're all alone and all of a sudden a voice comes behind you with such force and command and volume that it sounds like someone's blaring a trumpet right behind you and then you hear these words write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and you freeze (laughs) What what do you do at this point well You turn around, right? And you see what in the world is happening behind you. And that's what the Apostle John does in verse 12. He says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. When I saw Him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There's John, island of Patmos, and he's met by the greatest one, the one who started it all, the one whom, through whom all things exist and are held together by the word of his power. He's being met by someone who's so unique and so glorious that John's finite existence can't even handle it. He can't take it in. He shuts down. He turns off, unwillingly falls down as if he were dead. That's an uncommon vision and an uncommon yet very appropriate response to seeing Jesus in this way. Remember, John's the one who walked with Christ for, for three years. One of the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he saw Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw him transfigured in glory before him. But in this moment, he sees Jesus and he falls as if he's dead. This vision of Christ. Jesus clearly doesn't have the same appearance as he did while he walked the earth. Remember, people said to him, oh, Isn't this John the carpenter's son? No one was saying that now. John certainly wasn't saying that now in this vision. When he walked the earth, he was clothed in flesh. But Jesus doesn't come to John like that. He comes in the glorious vision, seeking to communicate things about himself through this vision. And I think it's fitting that we recreate this picture in our minds, because I think this is part of the purpose of this having this passage, so we might see and behold Christ. In fact, one commentator, this was helpful, John uses his allusions, he says, for their evocative and emotive power to call forth from his readers the same response of overwhelming and annihilating wonder which he experienced in his prophetic trance. Overwhelming and annihilating wonder. Well, after describing the scene around Christ, around the Son of Man, he says the Son of Man was in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which were told represent the seven churches that were mentioned. John then sees and describes the Son of Man himself in the vision. And I think the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words, is very fitting here. But we just have a handful of words here, right? When you read this description, it's as if John is just grasping for words to describe this amazing vision. So another commentator put it this way. It's as if he is struggling to express what is ultimately inexpressible. It's as if he's struggling to express what is ultimately inexpressible. You see that in verse 14, that the hairs of his head were white, uh, white like wool, like snow, like white wool, like snow. He's he's grasping it. It's so glorious. I'm trying to put it in words for you. And the words are a true representation of the vision. But yet, they can't contain the fullness of his glory. But let's look at each phrase in turn here. His clothing. John describes his clothing. He said he was clothed. With a long robe and a golden sash, with a golden sash around his chest. This robe is reminiscent of the robes that the priests in the temple worship would wear. In fact, that word uh, behind that, the Greek word behind that, when in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, six out of seven times out of, is used to refer to the priest's robe. So it very seems he's trying to spark in, in his readers' minds a priestly robe. Christ is identifying himself as our priest. a priest is someone who goes between man and God, right? Who mediates that relationship between man and God. He's a mediator, a priest who makes it possible for one to be in peaceful relationship with God. And this is how Christ, he's similar to the priests of the temple, right? He's a mediator. Yet at the same time, we know this, he's different. Because instead of offering an animal to substitute, Uh, For a human, as the old priest did, a sacrifice that had to be continually repeated, he offered his very own body as a substitute for us. A sacrifice that would never and could never be repeated. He is our perfect substitute. So that when he was crushed, we would be forgiven. When he was punished, we would go free. He is a great high priest. You know, regarding the the sash, we learn uh, from Exodus 9.29. The Old Testament priest had a sash made, and it says this, of fine twine linen, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, embroidered with needlework as the Lord commanded Moses. So the Lord had commanded this intricate embroidered sash for the Old Testament priest. But did you notice the description of this one? Did you notice what he reserved for his son a golden sash. A better one. Because He's a better high priest. Christ is the better high priest that they had all been waiting for. And it's no coincidence that there's a golden sash around Him similar in role to the Old Testament priests, but completely superior in every way. Jesus is our great high priest. So He describes His clothing. And then He goes sort of from top to bottom here. The hairs of His head... It says in verse 14, we're white like white wool, like snow, gleaming white, as bright as any white you could imagine. And this white hair for Jesus in this vision is not a sign of decay, right, as if he was fading. No, we learn elsewhere in Scripture that it's a crown of glory and dignity and wisdom. Now, son of man is used here, right? One like a son of man. This was Jesus. Remember, favorite title for himself in in the Gospels. It's no surprise to see it here in the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Son of man was also the title. If you're familiar with this, uh, given to in in a vision, used in a vision in Daniel chapter seven. Do you remember that? Uh, In Daniel's vision, he sees four beasts that represent four earthly kings, but in that vision, one who reigns supreme. Who seated at a throne, is the named the Ancient of Days. And here's how Daniel described, described him. Says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Sound familiar? What we just read. A little bit later, Daniel introduces then another person into his vision. One like a son of man who's distinct from the Ancient of Days. So this is what he says. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, two different people, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is where it gets interesting, right? In John's vision, described in Revelation chapter 1, the one like a son of man has the appearance of the ancient of days. Did you catch that? The ancient of days in Daniel gives glory and a kingdom to one like a son of man. And now there's the son of man in Revelation 1 who bears the image of the ancient of days. He has hair. Like white, pure wool, like the Ancient of Days. There is flames. There are fire. In other words, this one, like a son of man from Daniel, has received glory and dominion. Jesus has received the glory and dominion and the kingdom from his Father. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he has ushered into the kingdom of God in the power of his Spirit. He's brought the kingdom of God because he is the king when he came to the earth. And he did so at great cost to himself, right? He loved us with so great a love that He bore our sins on the tree. He identified with sinners. He identified with outcasts. He identified with rebels. He identified with weak people, even us. He gathered a people to Himself. And when He rose from the dead, He shows His power over death, hell, and and really all the wickedness of the world. He conquered all that seeks to oppose him, and that seeks to oppose those of us who are in his kingdom. He is the risen conqueror. And as a result, he received glory and a kingdom. And here he's pictured as the ancient of days. And by faith, we're united to Jesus Christ and brought into his kingdom. We see this uh, same idea in Philippians 2.9. therefore, because he died... Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the one they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't he just like us? Isn't he just, I mean, he's just the carpenter's son. Big deal, right? He walked 33 years. He is in reality the I am. The ancient of days, the living God, worthy of all adoration. And he walked among us. And he walked among us. Let's keep going. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Have you ever seen anything like this in real life? I mean, I have not. I remember too that, that when, when John's writing this, there's no Lucas films, uh, right? With, with all kinds of special effects, he's got nothing to relate this to. We might say, oh, "That's neat. I wonder how they did that." You know, that's cool. It's an illusion. You know, that's wow. It's just right there, and you kind of go like this, and you're looking. Does it burn? You know, no. He's got nothing to relate this to. There's no special effects. I mean, who, whose eyes burn like that and still work? Uh, do me a favor, if, if you ever see me and my eyes are burning like that, don't stand in awe. Take me to a hospital because I'm in trouble, right? Have pity on me, right? But, but we see it with Jesus, and, and, and it inspires awe, right? It, it inspires awe. He, Jesus is, is not like us. He, he, is, he is awesome in His power. His blazing eyes pierce the hearts of men, do they not? The, the, his eyes see into the darkness of our hearts, Completely, They see all of history with perfect clarity. This Jesus is to be feared and reverenced. We should not take him lightly. But he's merciful. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then it says his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Or the NAS says it this way, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His feet were, were made of a strong metal conveying the idea that, that Christ is stable and steadfast and they were red hot from the furnace. So, so they're pure from being refined, right? But they're blazing because they've just been refined. Even his feet are radiant. In a, in, a, in a world where feet were dirty and dusty and sandals and that was kind of a gnarly thing, His feet are radiant. There's nothing. There's nothing about Him impure. There's nothing about Him that is that is weak. There is nothing about Him that we cannot trust in His perfect righteousness and His strength. Even His feet. And, and then His voice. So He moves to, to, to the auditory. His voice, it says, was like the roar of many waters. So earlier his voice is commanding like a trumpet. Now it's likened to the sound of many waters. It's loud and powerful. Think Niagara Falls if you've been there. Niagara Falls, just rushing waters, roaring waters. And for those who are familiar with the Old Testament at the time, which was the Scripture, Ezekiel 43 too would have come to mind. It says this in in the Anais, it says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. The God of Israel, voice like many waters. So this vision is piling up things that were said of God, of Yahweh, in the Old Testament and ascribing them to Christ. So John's vision of Jesus is building out from a composite of Old Testament visions of Yahweh. So there's echoes of all these visions of God in the Old Testament. He's attributing to Jesus Christ the character of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Simply put, Jesus is the great I am. He is God. And then it says this. It says, in his right hand, he holds seven stars. Now, we're told later that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So the stars are are clearly symbolic for for something else. We're, We're given that right in the text. Yet God did choose to reveal Jesus in this vision as holding stars. And he could have chosen a number of things to represent the church, but he chose stars. So thinking about just the visual image for a few minutes, and let's consider what that teaches us about Christ. Now, if I'm able to hold something in my hand, it means I'm more powerful than it, right? I mean, I can control it. I can squish it. If it's a tomato, you know, I can pick up my kids. I'm I'm stronger, right? Big deal, right? Yet God, uh, this teaches us about Christ. He's holding stars. So he's more powerful than stars. And in one sense, right, we we, we sung this. He he created the stars. So so no surprise. So he should be more powerful than them. But let's not gloss over this for a moment. Let's think about the power of the sun, the closest star. So um, taking us back to science class here. The diameter width of the sun, 864,000 miles, means you need to stack 109 Earths side by side to be as wide as the sun, to recreate that width. Or 4.5 billion rulers, 4.5 billion rulers. The core of the sun, about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. 27 million degrees. The mass of the sun in tons, right? 2,000 pounds each, is a number that starts with two and has 27 zeros following it. That's how massive the sun is. 14 kiloton nuclear bomb, which is Hiroshima uh, class bomb. It converts one gram of mass to energy, right? So so, fission and mass and explosion, you know, one gram, just one gram, right? Well, the sun converts... 4.5 million tons of mass into energy every single second. Every single second. It's, it's a, I said, somebody said it was a billion, million, whatever that is, you know, a megaton bombs, one megaton bombs. 500 sextillion horsepower, if that means anything to you. And, And the sun's an average star in our universe, right? And Jesus doesn't even hold that. He holds seven in his hand. Now, it's symbolic, but, but again, there's the visual image there that, that describes something about the power of Jesus. He's more powerful than the things he holds in his hand. He's more powerful than, than seven stars, clearly. And he's far more powerful than even that. And if he can do that with stars, can he do that with the churches? Can, can he hold them? Can he strengthen them? Does he have authority over them? Does he have authority to protect, to command, to rebuke, which he does, right, in, in Revelation just a couple chapters later? And this was quite important. You know, John says, I'm a fellow sufferer, a brother and a fellow sufferer in the tribulation, right? This church, These churches were facing it and will face tribulation. And Jesus is holding them. And he's among the lampstands, which are the seven churches. So he is powerful. He's communicating something about himself and then it says from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword think about what a, what an image a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth you know the, there's something that's wonderful about children's picture bibles in the sense that jesus is compassionate and gentle right and so a child reads that and says, this is, this is someone who I can pray to, so I can approach. But then there's something that's lacking too, isn't there? This image, sword coming out of his mouth, this isn't the scruffy, kind of scooby-doo, shaggy kind of Jesus, you know, uh, you know far-off, wispy look in his face, you know. That, he's a fierce warrior. He's a fierce warrior, right? He's powerful. But he is also gentle, right? His weapon is his word, which proceeds from his mouth and is powerful like a sword. In Hebrews four twelve thirteen, 13, maybe this comes to mind. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's divine judgment, which we'll see... Unfold in the, in the book of Revelation is, comes through the word of Christ. He commands it, right? He'll bring about justice through the sword of His word. He'll make all things right through the power of His word. And we ought to fear Him for His justice. His glory. He moves on. He says, And His face shone like the sun shining in full strength. His face shone like the sun, shining in full strength. The glory of Christ, like the sun, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, shining. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? It has happened once before at the transfiguration. We mentioned this earlier, Matthew 17, two, And he was transfigured, changed before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Jesus is brilliant. That's what's being communicated here. It's through this visual picture. He is brilliant. He is radiant. And He, like the sun and like Yahweh, cannot be looked upon. I I think this is the sort of the climax of the vision here. This awesome, terrible, terrifying, awe-inspiring, glorious, fearful, wonderful face of Jesus Christ. And He sees it. And then He says, remember, "...when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead." Out cold he Jesus is truly an uncommon phenomenon you know along the way we, we walk through some of the symbolism right of the various parts of vision, which I think is the right way to to to, to look at this, but then at the same time, you know what these things communicate about Jesus Christ in and, and his character. but the symbolism is is i don 't think what left John undone in that moment right he's not thinking oh there's that and there's that, and boy is that. <gasps> You know, and he falls over, right? No, it's, he's taking in the visual, right? It's the vision of him. Oh, you know, he's in trouble. And he falls down as if dead. Anyone, uh, perhaps you don't, maybe I'm the only one. Anyone know, and, and Matt, I know Matt knows, the singer Morrissey. Remember the Morrissey, the, the Smiths, right? Yeah. Um, so he became famous in the 80s and 90s, alternative rock singer, who sounded like he'd taken way too many painkillers all the time. Um, pretty pretty odd guy Uh, so there was someone i knew in college somewhat and uh, he was the kind of guy this guy had kind of thrown all things masculine out the window and uh, he purchased tickets to a morrissey concert and uh, let's just say he was pretty pretty excited you know for this concert so he gets there he's just overwhelmed with the fact that he's seeing morrissey somebody that i think too you raised your hand you know uh face to face and he passes out cold just, I, I mean, to get to the concert. You know what I mean? It just passes out cold. No drugs, no alcohol. I mean, the guy was just high on celebrity fumes, and he was out cold because of Morrissey, right? So you didn't even heard of him? Now, we we all have our, our, our stories of a brush with greatness, right? And when we come in contact with greatness, however we define it, 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 it impacts us, right? We, we're changed. Sometimes we're deeply impacted. But all the impressive people we would ever want to meet, whether it's a politician, an actress, sports star, you name it. All the impressive people we'd ever want to meet, or maybe the impressive person, if you're like me, you you desire to be. All of that, small compared to Christ. Morrissey is not impressive in the light of Christ. We aren't impressive in the light of Christ. That's why when John meets the Ancient of Days, he falls as if dead before him. Because when we see Christ, we're we're no longer impressed with others. We're no longer impressed with ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't love, respect, honor. But in the light of Christ, John falls down as if dead. It's a fearful thing, isn't it? What's neat is the story isn't over there. Like, like every other vision, it goes on in a very similar way. Listen to this in verse 17, second half of 17. But he laid his right hand on me, that same hand, that powerful hand, held the seven stars. He laid that hand on him, saying, Fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not, he says, for I am the first and the last. So John's John's on the ground there. Fall, fallen as if, as if dead. And now this one like a son of man with a sword and the sun and the whole bit is coming towards him. And if you're John, you're thinking... I'm not sure this is a good development. This guy's coming towards me. You know, it it, it may not be a good thing. He's got a sword in his mouth and he's coming towards me. But immediately he places his hand on the apostle, a sign of blessing and of power, and tells him, as he told many before, you know, this isn't his first rodeo, right? Jesus has done this before. The same reaction, he says, fear not. Fear not. Maybe take a look in the scriptures and see sometime this week the various visions of Christ or of angels and see how many times, I haven't studied it to know exactly, but almost every time, if not every time, there's a fear not. Do not be afraid. Remember that? Mary, the shepherds, over and over again. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And And you know what this is? If you think about it, this is the good news, isn't it? This is the good news. This awesome, fearful, terrible, awe-inspiring one says, fear not. Really? He does? He created all? He's awesome? I should be afraid? But he says, fear not? That's good news. That's really good news. There's good reason to fear. Jesus is, I think, used to this kind of thing. He knows what's what's up, right? He's going to fall down or something's going to happen. He's going to say, fear now. But we don't get used to it. Nobody in the Scriptures gets used to seeing Jesus like this. He's he's fear-inspiring because of His terrible majesty, but at the same time, He's gentle with His creatures. What a God we serve. The pinnacle of humble strength, right? The ability to inspire awe and fear and really to, to destroy, right? But the mercy to speak words of peace and comfort and do not fear. Next he tells John he's the first and the last, otherwise known as the Alpha and Omega, the one who started it all and the one who will finish it all, right? This is the one who speaks comfort to John. He, the one who started and will finish it, speaks comfort to John. He calls himself the living one. In other words, not only does he live, I'm alive, right? That's not that interesting. But he gives life, the source of life, the essence of life. He is the living one. And then these two words, he says, I died. I died. I mean, okay, we're all familiar with this, right? We know Jesus died on a cross. But think about this. This one that we saw in this vision, he says, I died. I'm the living one. I died. And do you see the irony here? The one whose sight causes John to fall down as if he's dead had himself died. What explanation can there be for the living one? Dying. If you're the living one, what are you doing dying? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, in verse seven, a little earlier, John wrote this. He said to him, to Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. Freed us by from our sins by His blood. His death was an uncommon one because He was punished on a wooden Roman cross, yet He had done no wrong. He was the living one, yet He died. He was killed by wicked men, not for His sins, but for ours. And His blood, His death in our place, has freed us from our sins. I don't know what happened this week to you. I don't know what you did this week. Perhaps by, He has free. If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ... You are united to Him. Romans 6.14 says, Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. He has freed you. Sin still is dogging us, but He has freed you. Even if it's dogging you. Sin, we have been set free. He has covered it by the blood of Himself. He, he has sacrificed Himself. The living One has died. But He's alive forevermore because He didn't deserve to die. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, was seen by many real human beings, hundreds of them. He saw him. He was there. This isn't a story. This is reality. Real human beings, they believed in him. They believed in his mission so much that they did crazy things like breaking the law to proclaim Christ, which is why John is apparently on this island. Right? These men and women, they lived and they died for Jesus because they had a vision of him. God invites us through through this right here to have a vision of jesus as well this is something that is attainable by the word by the spirit i want to be let's be honest with each other though right there are times we get bored with christ isn't that true whether it's just by indifference um all out i mean it, it happens but it's not that he's boring, right? We, we grow dull. It happens to every Christian. And in this vision of him, though, you can't even look at him and stand up and stay there, right? You can't have a casual conversation with him. You can't get bored with Jesus in, in, you know, if, in this way. And God has decided that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can encounter him every time we open up our Bible. This is the way that God has intended it. Right. John had this vision, but we have a whole Bible full of Christ. The whole thing, Luke 24, Jesus tells him from beginning to end is really about him. Now, I know the tension of wanting a vision like John's. I've prayed for that, prayed for that many times. But God has decided for most of us that it's enough that we have the written revelation of Jesus Christ. It's okay to long for a vision of Christ. I think that's fine, but let's not downplay the word as some second-rate version of an encounter with God. So God is is not stupid, and He is not weak. He he could have arranged things very clearly. He could have arranged things such that each person would have an individual vision of Christ. But in His infinite wisdom that created all things, He decided that we will know Him primarily through words. This is the vision that we need. The sight that we need is, is here. It's here. He's given you what he believes in his wisdom we need. So when was the last time we just sat? And I'm speaking to myself here. It's, it, for the past couple of years for, 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 for us and the family, and the church, it's been a wearying time. And, and there's, there's all these temptations to turn to other false refuges. But when's the last time me, you, we just sat at the, at the feet of Christ in the Pages just to delight? Not Not duty. Just, I just want to delight in you. Who are you, God? God wants to reveal Christ on every page of this book. And so what John saw with his physical eyes, we see through the eyes of faith. But take heart, that's not the end of the story, right? One day we will see, we sang about this, Jesus with our own eyes. One pastor said it in a provocative way like this. He says, we will throw off our wretched faith and see Christ as he really is. Is faith wretched? Well, no. But compared to sight of Christ, faith is excellent. One day the sight we will have is far better. We have, we, we, we shall see Him, for as John says, and be like Him as He really is. So I want to nearly close our time here, just about done, by reading from Revelation chapter 5. This will give us both an anticipation of what we will one day see but also to give us an anticipation for what we can now see through the Word of God. There's another vision here. There's another image that we're supposed to, to see through the pages of Scripture. So you can read along with me if that helps, or you just close your eyes and listen. Whatever, whatever's going to help you just to, to listen to the Word of God here. Revelation 5. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll, And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped so there's more falling down but it's falling down in worship jesus has been given the glory of the ancient of days and he deserves every bit of it let, let, let worship rise in our hearts you want to know how to resp- I, I think it's worship adoration delight awe he's so worthy of all the adoration of all of his people. So, so may his praise grow with you all. May his praise grow in in Greenville. May his praise grow in your family, in your neighborhood, in, in your workplace. May God bless you so that you may make disciples of Jesus Christ who praise him so that the praise of Jesus Christ here in Greenville and really all over the globe, would grow and increase more and more. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, you are worthy, worthy, worthy. His words are inadequate because of how glorious you are, how great, how awesome. Thank you for this picture, God. We, this is to shock us into how great and glorious, but then how merciful you are. Fear not. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless this church, Lord, with a vision of Christ and, and, and that it would our brush with you and your greatness would deeply impact us once again. Help us, Lord, to see Jesus Christ, to keep Him central. Because you are... You are the center of the universe, God. And so we thank you and we praise you and we worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.